Hey, this is Alejandro Pelais from Dinograve and Madras, and you're experiencing Poppet's Corner. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Poppet's Corner. Looking forward to doing this one. This will be a brand new segment or a brand new kind of special episode. As I, as I call it, we're going to go into the jazz field, learn all about this specific style of music. And, and we have an underground, uh, I would say an underground legend in, in this community out here in, in Orange County, in L.A. County. I'd like to please bring on my good buddy, Mr. Terrence Love. Terrence, how you doing? What a pleasure, Tanner. Good Thanks. to see you. Good to, to be here. Happy to tell my story. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I appreciate you giving me a few minutes of your time to, uh, to just talk shop and talk music away from everything else that's going on mm -hmm. um right now but how you been before we get started i'm doing pretty good you know life's i i can't complain other than the clock's ticking and and i seem to be getting older <laughs> along with those experiences in life comes age and along with age comes uh weak knees and uh, sore ankles etc <laughs> <laughs> so the basis of the show i'm, I'm literally going to go through your entire kind of kind of musical career and just learn a little bit about you specifically so if you're ready i'd love to get started sure and just tell us tell I'm some ready. stories i'm ready ask questions or i'll just start rambling whatever <laughs> you want to do man <laughs> so where i like to start with these particular episodes is just ask can you give me some of your first kind of recollections of just hearing music for the first time and what was the band that that did it for you at first are you speaking in terms of jazz or any particular any kind? like well, five years old are you sitting in your dad's car well I mean, interestingly enough i'll i'll um uh, you know uh, i came from a, a bit of a musical family although my father didn't play an instrument or anything but uh he was a, a true classical and jazz aficionado of its time and uh, like i said i'm 68 years old so i grew up in the in the 50s and uh in early 60s i i kind of believe that i'm if you think about everything i've been able to go through everything from uh the remnants of swing music with the uh, world war ii and the big bands and all that stuff uh all the way through you know, the Beatles, pop culture, the hippie stuff that went on. Uh, I was a, a punk rocker. I got into uh, rock uh, very early on with, of course, you know, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, uh, all that stuff. Led Zeppelin. I got into Jethro Tull. And uh, and then I was even a punker in, in the late, late 70s. And, uh, you know, I got to do things like see... Hawkwind in 1973 at the Santa Monica Civic, uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer with Mahavishnu Orchestra, Black Sabbath with uh, when they first came out here, I think it was 1971. But the, the, the whole thing about music for me was that my father was an electrical engineer, and growing up in the late 50s and the early 60s, we had the first stereo but it was a huge console like a, a a piece of furniture and at that time they had large speakers there all you know draped on the sides uh, so you couldn't see it it was all hidden but uh, my father went in there and uh it was stereo 
But they didn't, people weren't wearing stereo headphones. So he went to Radio Shack and being an electrical engineer, he, he rigged up a stereo mic jack or a headphone jack in there. So, but it was those hard headphones like the plastic from an old telephone, that real hard and not, not much to it, but it was stereo. And uh, so, but the cord was only like five feet long. So I used to lay down. Uh, on the floor in the living room listening to the stereo through there and I was listening to Brahms and Mozart and Haydn and uh, Shostakovich and Tchaikovsky, Mazorsky, all sorts of uh, classical music and that's kind of where uh, I got I got my musical start was with classical music and uh, you know I picked up the saxophone when I was 10 and I started playing that and you know but my father listened to, you know, back then it was different where um, we didn't have, it was, it's not like now, of course, with the internet, but what you knew about any particular band, orchestra, or genre of music was by reading the liner notes on the album. And that's how you learned. There was no, you know, we had an Encyclopedia Britannica or whatever, these huge books, but the, the knowledge that you gained was on the radio or by listening to that and uh, or reading the thing. So I would, I would learn about classical music and I learned about jazz by the few. Like my father didn't have six Dexter Gordon uh, albums or five Miles Davis. He had like one Sonny Rollins, one Miles Davis, one uh, uh, Al Hurd or, you know, Dixieland or whatever. So that was it for me. So what I did was just dove into it and there was some... Uh, I guess inborn aptitude for me musically that it made sense and the, the more intense and the more deliberate the music was the more I understood it it's interesting so I want to go back real quick so how old were you during this time period of, of essentially getting putting the headphones on and Another question regarding this is, did you guys actually have speaker speakers so you could crank it up, or are you only listening to it through no, headphones? No, through the we there were speakers inside there, but at that time when you put it in, it would cancel out the speakers. Put, uh, oh, uh, my dad, it, my it. dad rigged it up, you know, <laughs> cable through the back there. What I'm saying was, was the head, were the headphones your preferred way of listening to music at that time, or did, was it a volume issue to where you kind of had to plug no, in? Okay. No, 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 it wasn't a volume issue. It was a matter of that you couldn't hear separation through uh, speakers that were just like this, not the level that you could when it was plugged in like that. And then, of course, and part of that came from when, where I really started noticing that was in 1965 when the Beatles came out with their first, George Martin started uh, working with them and they were doing panning and stuff left and right, guitar on the right, you know, and that's where I kind of caught on to it. And then it, it fascinated me that I could hear the ride cymbal on this side and the hi-hat here and I could hear strings up here. And so that's kind of just became my preferred way to listen to it. You know. So you, what I'm just kind of curious because that you're, it's what I call that is kind of isolation. So it's like you're isolating certain kinds of instruments with within the mix itself. So I'm just curious, was this kind of an un an unrecognized kind of kind of thing where you gravitated towards listening into 
specific things and having everything kind of separated, which is probably why you like jazz because it's so chaotic and there's so many kind of things mm-hmm. going on. So I'm curious if if that played a part into why you loved classical and and got more into jazz and prog because of the chaos and. Um, yeah, of, I, I would think the intricacy of it, the complexity of that kind of music, it's it's like, you know, if you're a, whatever you may do, you know, if you're a woodworker and you at first you just sand it straight and then next thing you know, if you become a woodworker, you get a router and you start making things. It just became, it was so interesting to me and I had the aptitude for it. You know, I kind of look at it this way. There are people that listen to music in the foreground like me, and there are people that listen to it in the background. Like, they, you know, it's going on, and they, they may be grooved to it or whatever, but they don't know any of the lyrics. They don't know any of the things like that. They, they just don't listen to it with the intensity that I do. Well, they're not invested. I would say invested in right. the music. I think you were more invested at an early age. So was this around five or six that we're talking about uh, for you? About eight, eight years old, I okay. would say, yeah. So, but again, but again... Uh, it's not necessarily vested. I believe there's some kind of uh, uh, innate ability to comprehend or not. Just like some people are with mathematics. I happen to be mathematically uh, at, uh, pretty apt at it. And, uh, you know, but I think what it was, uh, okay, when I first uh, was nine years old and I got my first saxophone, I took I took a test in school and they played two notes. They played a note here and a note here. One was higher or one was lower. And they'd say, you pick, is it, was that note higher or lower than the prior one? And I scored 100% of it. I believe I still have that little sheet of paper. And then, of course, the band director goes, hmm, he's a big guy. Saxophone or tuba. You know, they, <laughs> that's how they do it. That's how they build a band. But anyway, my first lesson with him he had he kind of said, and now you got to realize we're talking about nine, ten year old kids, so he can't get too deep. But he said, if you want to know about music, listen to the bass line, whatever it may be. It may be a bass guitar, it may be a bass, it may be the low cellos, it may be this. But if you follow the bass line, you'll you'll understand the chord structure. You'll understand wh- what uh, you'll keep yourself within that that major or minor triad. If you listen to the bass, and of course these were all technical and th- uh, theoretical terms and concepts for me, but I was able to just immediately listen and understand, and uh, that's kind of uh, how it, it started with me. You know, so. It- uh, when you get the saxophone, and it's you mentioned earlier that it was because of, uh, of I guess, right place, right time. Your teacher saw <laughs> something where in you where it's like he's because you were a bigger gentleman or a bigger kid, I should say, than the rest of your peers. Right. So it was almost like out of necessity they probably needed somebody that could fill that void. But I guess what made you stick with the saxophone, even though you were kind of just given it, I'm just curious what made you kind of fall in love with the sax? And you still play to this day, not yeah. not as much as yeah. I, I would have liked to hear, but I, you still play to this day, so you're still invested in yes. that specific instrument. So I'm curious what made you gravitate and, and stick with that specific one instead of branching off into a, a, a trumpet or a, the piano mainly? or Interestingly enough, I, I think I really... Uh 
because I loved the trumpet. My brother ended up playing the trumpet, and I loved the trumpet because I my first real real thing with with jazz was more along the Dixie Line, Al Hurt, and that just kind of I always wanted to play the trumpet, but then I heard Charlie Parker, and when I heard Charlie Parker, and I pl- was playing the sax, I said, okay. This is my guy. <laughs> so I don't know if it was uh, the, you know, the horse or the cart, whatever happened first. I just know that, that after hearing Charlie Parker play, I, I found the beauty of the saxophone. So branching off of this, how did you initially hear Charlie Parker? Through a record. Okay, so it's yeah. like a friend giving it to you or your dad my bringing dad, it home? My dad or? had records, and, and he had quite a bit. He, he probably had 200 records in, 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 the, uh, in 1964. That was a lot, you know, and uh, at least for, you know, your uh, middle America type people, you know, we were, I was born in Chicago. We moved out to California. My dad's an engineer in, in, uh, the early sixties. And we lived a pretty, you know, pretty uh, w- middle class life. And, but he, this is, it was his passion. And every morning the radio was playing and I listened to a lot of classical radio, uh, shows and jazz shows, which there were a lot more back then, of course. I'm curious for you because jazz was, and you just mentioned it literally a second ago, it, I w- it was more prominent in the mainstream. I would say more people were into jazz in the 60s than they say are nowadays, especially for a kid mm-hmm. uh, who was 9 or 10 or mm-hmm. even in your teens. Jazz was pro- was a prominent source of music that was that was more mainstream, I would say, around the 60s and, and 50s. I mean, that was like the, it's heyday almost. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in terms of mainstream wise, right. not not saying anything, not saying it, it's died. I'm just saying in the mainstream wise, you had more people that were absolutely into it. okay. So then Elvis and the Beatles and rock and roll came. Correct. <laughs> That's correct. why it all changed. Correct. <laughs> but it's just interesting that that you found it early and stuck with it all through all out these all these years kind of later and somebody like me who didn't grow up with jazz mm-hmm. i learned about it through other mediums mm-hmm. such as tv and video games like mm-hmm. they would play jazz in it and that's what intrigued me about it was this is awesome and it's it's almost like because i'm in a more kind of extreme type of music it like wasn't cool to like that stuff mm-hmm. but i didn't care because i just loved the in, it was so chaotic, and it just almost reminded me of extreme music because it's like only certain niche people get it, mm-hmm. and when you when you get it, you almost fall in love with it. So I only can imagine when you were a kid that you had that same kind of feeling for that specific right. style well, of music. Well, it, it's just like, um, it's funny how you would say the word extreme music because I don't think of, of heavy metal or death metal as extreme but in the same sense, I don't think that that jazz is extreme. It just happens to be what I get and what other people get in their thing. Again, back to the thing about some people listen to the foreground, some people listen in the background. I could not, I absolutely could not put on something like Dexter Gordon or Miles Davis and just chat over it with somebody else. It would be like, well, let's pause this. This is the good part. 
let's talk and then when we're done talking <laughs> I mean, yeah. well we'll play it again so i i think it's 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 within and um but it, it's true but it, you also it realize that music before beatles rock and roll elvis and all that stuff was jazz in every movie every soundtrack was an orchestra of some sorts and jazz was the basis with classical and strings with every soundtrack everything every cartoon Hanna-Barbera all of Looney Tunes all of this stuff was analog orchestra and essentially jazz you just didn't realize it because there are sound effects going on and all that stuff so um you know it's like if you say someone, were you into the Flintstones? Did you know that that's classical and jazz music in the back? People wouldn't even, they wouldn't think that. But if you just go back and listen to it. So like you were saying, back at that time, that wasn't extreme. That was the mainstream, you know. And uh, uh, But then you learn about it now because what's happened is as time is gone. And by the way, jazz standards, which people, they, they're usually what are covers of what was a popular song in the 40s or 30s in a movie, and then they just put a jazz beat to it. And that's how a lot of these interpretations, essentially people in rap do that stuff with sampling and all that stuff. They take these themes and then they embellish them with their own thing. And so, you know, that's that was the norm for me back then. But again, still at that time, you realize that when I was 10 years old, the Beatles were exploding. So then from that moment on, from that moment on, it was just like 180 and all this other stuff wasn't hip. And then the rest of the 60s turned into psychedelia and all that stuff. Now, were you still listening to, uh, I, again, you were more invested in jazz. So that my answer would be, I'm answering my own question, but it would be yes. You were still listening to jazz and rock music and you so you're still hip to what was happening in the mainstream but also didn't forget your core which was the jazz and and classical stuff uh it, it, to me it holds more weight i i i would think i i just get more out of jazz than i would say the beatles or to me personally just me speaking personally so for you getting into the beatles and the heavier stuff, you know, Woodstock was only like five years later after right, right. this point. So you had Hendrix and things like that, where it was very chaotic in its own in its own genre, just like right. how jazz was. Absolutely. So I think you were gravitating more towards that chaotic sense oh, I, of I, music. I, I drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> I drank the Kool-Aid and I went all the way. I mean, I went all the way. I was completely distracted from jazz. During that time, not that I didn't appreciate it anymore, but this is new. This is like, this is like if I was listen, like uh, listening something just completely bizarre. And and to this day, I still think the period of sixty four to like seventy five, especially when groups like Tull, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Genesis, Yes, Rush. All of these uh, uh, gentle giant, all these groups, just really, they they just they went in the rock world towards the jazz thing, you know. It, it, I mean, in an interpretation that is, as you would say, extreme, as let's say jazz would be. Now, 
can we go back to a point you made? You called them standards, and and for yeah. us folks who who aren't really well versed in jazz, uh, what exactly is it, the difference between a standard and a cover? Okay, well, uh, that's a good question, really, because what. Well, uh, a lot of times when uh, when people play covers, you think of, or at least I think of, a cover band. Like you've got a a Beatles tribute band or a Journey tribute band or whatever. They're playing covers. Or someone that's famous does, like uh, Lady Gaga or or someone else, they'll do something that somebody else made and they will do a cover of that in their own thing in a different interpretation. A standard is a, a, a standard is essentially a classical slash love song ballad or a, it's usually a ballad of some sort from a movie from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s that was famous and it was recorded with an orchestra, something like in My Fair Lady or uh, any of these movies that were out then. And then they take it in a complete different interpretation with a syncopated time, with a swinging uh, beat. So that's why uh, uh, Miles Davis... Um, how, so how is so Miles Davis did that? He did that with My Funny Valentine. You know, he took that. Now that was from a movie. He took that and turned that into the one of the most iconic jazz interpretations or standard. So then, how is so what or 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 uh, take five or blue all uh, Ron, Turk? Yeah, how how are those now considered standards? Because those didn't come from. From movies, those were jazz songs, and well, now they're now they're considered standards, okay, right? So they're exactly. not covers. You you just answered your own question there. <laughs> <laughs> so what was popular at one time and was monumental at one time, then becomes something in the shelf that new artists discover, take it, dig it like you dig it. Wow, that was like a perfect note. <laughs> uh, they take it. They discover it, they interpret it, and they put it out in their own style, and that's what it is. That becomes a standard. That essentially is a standard. So, obviously, going moving uh, now, like I mean, let, let's take a, let's take a punk band like Rosillos. Okay, somebody's going to get their head beat in tonight. That's not a standard. <laughs> that's that's something that they uh, someone just made. But I, and I've never heard a, like a punk band do a standard per se, but there are rock bands and even metal bands that will take someone else's st uh, else's something from the seventies or the sixties. A rock song can be a standard for a newer rock band. So why aren't we calling them standards? We're calling them covers. I, I guess is my my initial question. Who's we? Well, the uh, mainstream wise. Um, well, I I think uh, why is it only in the jazz world where they're considered standards? It's not well? only it's really it's not really only in the jazz world, but jazz made its it, jazz made itself known for you know the, it blossomed out of taking very popular to and you realize also back in the thirties forties how somebody knew about music was either going to the movie. Going to the movie and see the the Saturday matinee, 
or listening on their radio together to that kind of music. Do I need to get a little closer? Okay, sorry. Okay. Uh, I, <laughs> okay, so um, they would go, and that's where they learned about this music. So then, uh, you know, just like um, Smoke on the Water, okay? You, okay, you're talking about Smoke on the Water. Everyone knows that. How many people have done that? A lot of people have done that. That essentially is a standard. But that was a song that, you you know, or you, you go to a wedding or somewhere, they're always playing that. Everybody, you, you play that song, people know it. Uh, people know it. So, and... Uh, this, the jazz standards that these cats in the 50s and 60s were doing were songs that everybody knew. There wasn't a Google, there wasn't a uh, Spotify, there wasn't any of that stuff. They just knew it because it was there. Sure, know? but I'm just, I'm just, it's just interesting that we don't call them standards. We call them covers. Yeah. Like we in jazz world, they're called standards, but yes. in, in our in the rest of like the mainstream rock, we call them covers mm -hmm. you know yeah <laughs> i think it's also the same with the vernacular too <laughs> sure sure <laughs> a rocker may say rad and a jazz guy will go it's cool yep. <laughs> so speaking of cool there's another point that i would love to touch upon and i didn't know this until a few podcasts ago when i when uh, i had my buddy jordan uh from ionic impulse on and he was telling me the differences in sound when it comes to West Coast versus East Coast jazz. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know the differences and I was trying to get more I'm trying to get more information on that. And if you can just educate me, what is the difference between West Coast jazz and East Coast jazz and who who are considered East Coast players versus West Coast? Well, uh, you know, that that that's a, a broad uh discussion here but essentially what it is is there's a there's a thing called west coast cool it's usually a more mellow uh, like an art pepper type uh stand can uh, you know a a kind of a smoother uh cannibal adderley uh like you were talking about the lighthouse uh, earlier on when we were speaking um the the bud shank you know very kind of uh melodic and then the the new the New York stuff, the harder stuff, and that was Charlie Parker at one time, but then he came over here, is more what's called hard bop, or what you may call, um, the, what was that word? Not complicated. You what was it? Oh, uh, when we were just you were describing the the uh, music as chaotic, you know, it's more it's it's definitely what we would in the jazz world we call it out. <laughs> that's out man that's out different key signatures uh modal uh, structures of the chords and uh very long like uh, coltrane coltrane went in some crazy different things at times but then you know but then if you listen to like i said art pepper before or jerry mulligan these were all what they call straight ahead, straight ahead down the line, and it's and it's always pretty much a, a swing, and it's a much more melodic. Whereas, bop, hard bop, and all that was more chaotic, more edgy, you know. Because I, he called, and I'm going to quote him. He called West Coast jazz as cool jazz. It yeah. sounds cool. It's well, that's just... well, that's what they call it, West Coast cool. Okay. Yeah. And a lot of it is a lot of it is, of course, by just like guys in the uh, uh, in your genre of music have terms for this. 
a lot of stuff was going on at Capitol Records. A lot of stuff was going on in the Pacific th- uh, recordings. There were specific recording uh, studios and labels at that time, and they featured, just like Motown featured all of that rhythm and blues stuff and the Phil Spector stuff and all that stuff. But in the... Uh, in the jazz world, there were people that were recording in New York. There was Norman Granz. There were some of these other the producers that were just really into that stuff. And then, of course, you know, we're separated by so far. And back then, travel wasn't as easy, you know. So it's just like tribes. People, the tribes are in certain places. And back then, they would take trains or cars, go into places to go into gigs. Same thing here. It's quite. It's three thousand miles across the way, so it's different. You know, that's. Uh, I think that's really what it is. But it's very noticeable, and and in the style, and some people also are very uh, polarized about it. Some people, it's, it's simple stuff, that West Coast cool shit. And then there are other can I cuss or should I? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and then there's uh, uh, guys on the, uh, you know, West Coast cool guys going on that bop, man. They're just, they're out. They're out. They're just trying to be out, trying to make a, too many effing notes, you know? Too many notes. <laughs> so where does smooth jazz fit in? Because I think there's general consensus that a lot of people hate. Oh, my God. I'm not a smooth jazz All right, guy. Okay. So I, you know, it's funny. When I was coming here, I was thinking, I hope he doesn't ask me about smooth jazz. No, I'm not asking you about it, but I'm All saying. Right. Well, let me just explain. In to, the jazz world, where does that specific well, thing fit in? Or is that years later uh, that wasn't a part of well, the here, 60s? Well, something. first of all, let me qualify myself for those who don't know me, whatever I, I, I founded and built. Steamers Jazz Club for in, in Orange County here for 22 years. And, and one of the things when I built the place was, uh, and this is in the early 90s, is that this is when smooth jazz would, was at its height. And, you know, uh, Kenny G and all this stuff out there was... Yeah, it, it, that Those were covers. <laughs> those were covers of jazz standards that were done, but it was done in a swarmy little way and it's for the i call smooth jazz and uh, you know for anyone that's out there that's a smooth jazz lover don't get mad at me this is my interpretation smooth jazz is jazz for those who don't get it or those who listen to music in the the background interesting smooth jazz is it's it's it doesn't grab my attention it sounds all the same to me now i've i know many people that do both and many smooth jazz players that are fantastic straight ahead jazz players themselves but the genre was popular it was making money and they were selling out shows by doing that kind of stuff so they started heading there. A guy named John Clemmer, who was a great straight-ahead uh, jazz saxophonist, got into the thing, and he started using an echoplex, and he was going, whoa, 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 you know, and, and, and it became very popular. And, and uh, guys like uh, um, uh, David Sanborn. David Sanborn is an incredible player, but... He, and then he then he got into smooth jazz, and then he was playing with David Bowie. I mean, doing he could do it all, but you know, I I don't know if it's where the money was, and that's why they did it, and they became, they got a crowd. A friend of mine, bless her heart, she's passed away, but she uh, got some free tickets to the Hollywood Bowl about three years ago, maybe four years ago. 
It could have been longer than that. And it was for, uh, she said oh, some jazz thing, you know, she, somebody just gave it to her. And I went there and it was, uh, I can't even remember <laughs> the name, foreplay or something like that. I don't remember what it was. And it was like, there were people, <laughs> there were people in the thing with their lighters and, and cell phones going like this, like, you know, like a, a ballad. And, it, and I was just going, whoa, I felt like I was tripping on acid or something. <laughs> at this show but you know what god bless them god bless them man that's their thing they do it it's just not my thing well sure i was just curious where that fit in as far as the overall form of what jazz music i would i would listen jazz in itself the word jazz does not i mean you if you want to take it back to its roots you might as well call it blues sure you know it's true. Robert Johnson, you, you can go to blues. You could also sit there and go, well, it's actually Dixie bands that were playing in the South. And we could say everything that's Dixieland, which we now call traditional jazz, is that, you know, now what was, what, what I thought, what, like we were talking about Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and Hendrix and all that stuff, that was, that was rock. But now it's classic rock, you know, and, and, this jazz that was done in the uh, 20s, 30s, and 40s with that where you had, see what it was is you had orchestras, okay? So that was an orchestra, that was a band, a big band. But then when you got into the combo, the quartet, the quintet, the trio, that's that's what happened when it started to branch away and wait, we don't have to have four saxes, four trumpets, four trombones, piano, bass, drums, and a guitar to do this. We can do it with this. With four people or five people or three <clears throat> you can expand whatever is going on. So that became the, the mainstay, and then all of a sudden Dixieland became what's called uh, uh, classic jazz, or or um, I can't think of the name now. But <clears throat> what happened with smooth jazz, smooth jazz wasn't called smooth jazz at first. It was called contemporary jazz. Because just the word contemporary, that's like contemporary death metal. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I know. Well, think about it. I mean, you know, so, you know, I, I, as I age also, you know, I never want to give up my opinions, but I just don't let stuff like that, uh, different strokes for different folks. I turn the radio on, I listen to what people call rhythm and blues now is that weird uh, auto tune. I don't know what it is. You know, I don't have no idea what it is. What these people are listening to, and, and I'm just going. This is they're selling zillions of albums or whatever. Well, the thing is, is every 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 decade has its own version of that specific style of music. Mm -hmm. So if you get a kid from this era and put them in. Put him or her in the '60s. Oh yeah, it would blow their mind. Oh yeah, because they 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 wouldn't know what to do. With exactly. Themselves. I don't know if you've seen. Have you ever seen those things on YouTube? They're little videos, and the, and it shows a graph, and it's like top Billboard of of 1960 to 2020, and it starts out on the top. 
they show like Elvis Presley and then the Beatles. And, and then as it goes to the first quarter, one rises above another one. Have you ever seen that? It's like a, a, an animation of the charts. And I watched it watching Michael Jackson, Rihanna, uh, Bruce Springsteen, all these people going in and out. You could go, oh, whoa, that was, oh, I remember that. Uh, Cindy Lauper did that. Oh, Madonna did that. Oh, you know, Stevie Wonder, blah, blah, blah. So you're mentioning here today, gone tomorrow yes, kind of stuff. Exactly. It's interesting that. Did I lose it? There we go. Thank it's, you. It's interesting that jazz, especially from the '60s and '70s, has held up so well to where it was popular, but it still was pertained to the roots of what music was. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about selling records. It was about music integrity, mm -hmm. as I call it, which is why I love. Again, the style of music that 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 I play to me, thrash is like that same thing. It's it's the root of what that specific style of music is. It's it's almost it's the purest form of what that music is. Like punk music is like that. That's mm -hmm. why I like punk music mm -hmm. that you mentioned that. So we can definitely branch off of here. And, and what where I want to go with this is, what is the correlation between prog music and punk because i almost feel they're one and the same in terms of freedom wise because it's almost like you could do whatever you wanted in those two genres of music when it first was came out because mm -hmm. it's like really pure so in your opinion what are the correlations between those two styles specifically well hmm. that's an interesting um comparison uh i would um because you're comparing Prague to punk, and I would think more that punk to mainstream uh, mid '70s rock um, is how I, what, more comparison. Because I look at at I look okay. Here's a good analogy. I look at punk as a East Coast bop of mainstream uh rock is west coast cool in in the in the rock world and punk was something that was unbridled and was celebrated because of that and uh it gave people the fr and and of course look all of this music in addition to you know self-fulfillment and all that stuff when you get an audience, that makes a difference. And it got an audience. And it just like what happened in the late 60s with the hippies and, and Woodstock and all that st style of free psychedelic music went to rock, you know, changed that from the Beatles, which the Beatles were, you know, great rock stuff in the 60s. But then in, the, in 65, 66, 67, started changing, doing albums like Sgt. Pepper's and Magical Mystery Tour. And they're adding things like uh, <clears throat> synthesizers and Mellotrons and all these things. And the music changed for a lot of people. They didn't quite understand that. This is what happened with punk, I think, to, to regular music. And there were certain people that followed it. And there's certain people that was going... Man, that stuff's too far. I mean, I was a punker myself. I had purple hair at one point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the, I think my correlation would be would pertain more to the musicians that played the, those two styles of music because, again, you're doing whatever you want in prog music and in right. punk, 
you're essentially doing the same thing. You might be some simplifying it and yeah. playing right. however hard you want to play or, or however many notes you want to play, but you can get... I just I always have thought there was a general consensus musically between those two without us even knowing it. So it's just interesting. Uh, there probably is. There probably is. But I think that uh, on, uh, I think you said it when you said it more simplified. I have not really thought about it that much, but I, I can see the comparison there. I personally think when it comes to Prague that um, uh, th- it, it, it was very intricate and the, the, uh, the, handful of of top-notch prog bands in my opinion because there's a lot of copy prog bands out there it it was and certain artists ian anderson with tull uh peter gabriel with genesis um uh keith emerson of course uh rick wakeman with yes uh and john uh Anderson too. Uh, these 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 compositions were more than just like one song because they created full concept albums that that required uh, a seamless uh, movements and and things within a piece, a twenty two minute side of an album that they had to gather all the way around and and it was um, very intricate. But some people, you know, they they listened to. Tall, and they said if it's not locomotive, uh, or if it's not uh, cross-eyed Mary, think of her as a brick thick, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. They just, you know, they didn't quite understand it. So, um, you know, but then in punk, punk uh, is like I've heard some pretty bad punk bands, but then I've heard bands like the Rosillos, like 999, and some other groups that just really had great writing to it. But there are some, but you know, it's all, if, it's just like you don't understand. If I don't understand some kind of uh, thrash, you know, it's like, uh, do I have to think about it to, <laughs> to, to understand it? Yeah. And if, uh, yeah, if I, uh, then it's, you know, it's what is the impetus? What is it? What does somebody have to do to understand this music? So I think a lot of this comes from within. It may be genetic. It may be environmental, who you were brought up with. A lot of stuff goes there. But, you know, you talked about the longevity of jazz, and I don't mean to bring you back to that, but the schools have kept up music programs and music programs with musical instruments and bands still playing at halftimes and and marching in parades. And when you're playing these acoustic instruments... You know, it's a perfect setup and people start reading music and then they go to Juilliard or they go, you know, they they go to music colleges, uh, Northwest uh, in uh, Texas and, and, you know, they, they uh, Berkeley in, in Boston, they, uh, this is jazz. So it's still there. I don't think it's ever going to go away. I don't think classical music ever going to go no, away. No, 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 no. That's because of, of its purity yeah. to to music in general. That's mm-hmm. what, what my whole point was to it. Uh, and it's interesting that 
some musicians don't even have to go to school and, and they can make a living in, in it. And some people have to go to school, but they get this really kind of niche job in teaching people. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different outlets to, to both aspects. It's just really interesting. I would, say most, I would say most people in the rock world d- don't go to school. And not, there's not too many jazz guys that are big that haven't taken it in, in school because of the th- theory and all that that's involved with it, the complexity in that sense, not to... It doesn't make it any better or any less than anyone else, but that's that's kind of the way I see it. Well, a lot of people get more freedom from not going oh, into, not having to play into certain modes or scales. They, they, there's a sense of freedom to that, you know. Well, you want to know my story? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I'll tell, you. So, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you. Go ahead. Well, I was going to, I wanted to get back to your story because yep. it's a perfect segue. And so uh, immediately kind of after, did you actually play in a in a band immediately okay, after? Here, here we go. It's <laughs> funny, too, because it, it was perfect timing. Yeah, I played in the band, okay? I played in all through... Um, uh, what do you call from when I was 10 all the way till in college and in the band in high school, I was back then, of course, this is early seventies. So they didn't late sixties, early seventies. They did not have, uh, they didn't call it jazz. They called it stage band. We had the big band, which was the, the large full orchestra band that we did orchestras. Then we had what was called a stage band. That's essentially what a big band is for saxes, four trumpets, four trombones, piano, bass, drums, guitar, etc. And we would do jazz tunes. And we would do big band stuff. Benny Goodman, Stan Kenton, all of the, you know, Glenn Miller, uh, Count Basie, all of that stuff. So naturally, um, uh, the and the, back then, they didn't have the methods of teaching on the level that they do now. There's a guy named Jamie Abersall that came out. He was a sax player, and he's still, I don't know if he's still alive, but he came out with these lessons where he would essentially have albums of, of tracks, popular standards, without the sax or without the trumpet, and you would play it. It's like, and you would play along you would play that part and you'd have headphones on or you'd listen to it and you'd play it. They would do it without the sax part and you'd play the sax or they'd do it without the trumpet You'd trump and you'd have it. And that's how they taught you. But it wasn't, it's revolutionized the way it is. But at the time that I was there, that's not what it was. So there were 18 people in the, in the big stage band, right? But there was like one sax player, me, that could improvise play the solos. There was one trombone player that could improvise and one trumpet player that could improvise. And the piano player, the bass, whatever, they may be able to. But in our band, we had a great band, but (laughs) there was only one sax player that could solo, and that was me. There was no trombonist that could solo, and there was one trumpet player also in B-flat. The tenor sax is B-flat, trumpet is B-flat. And I also played alto, which is E-flat. So we would basically take turns 
being the only soloist, you know, and this, but this guy, his name was Frank Perniciaro. And he's, to this day, I think about him because he was like miles ahead of anybody and certainly me at that time. And I was a pretty proficient, good, good player. And I played there. So I naturally went on to college and um, we'll get into a little bit about my, my story about uh, college and my uh, 10 drops out, dropouts and all that, that crap. But I went and played it in um, at, uh, in the college sta- uh, stage bands and stuff like that. And so I got in a band called Open Road that uh, from in 1972. And this is when uh, this is when Crosby Still Nash and Young and Stephen Stills and and some uh, some great bands were out there doing stuff. And this band we called it, we were Open Road. Uh, a friend of mine at the time, uh, guitar player, uh, started it. We had a good singer, and at that time, no other band, rock band, at least not on our level, you know, high school or just out of high school players, had a sax player or a keyboardist. And this guy, Randy, played. He had a, a like, it wasn't a Hammond, but it was a Wurlitzer or something like that, and he was tweaking it in the back, and I was playing, and I was playing flute, and so we started doing some Tull songs, we were doing some Bowie songs, we were doing some uh, Neil Young's, but we had a sax, so, I mean, it was pretty good, and uh, did that for about three years, and didn't really tour much, but played in Southern California at places, and then the band kind of broke up as things went, and uh, you know I was struggling in school, and, um, and because I wanted to make money, and part of me making money was uh, selling pot, and uh, I was drinking beyond belief, and and uh, I just couldn't I couldn't keep my shit together, and so I kind of. I wouldn't call myself a loser, but I certainly wasn't productive in life at the time. And I'll tell you kind of what really cut me off from the whole bit about uh, gigging anymore was I went, uh, I was maybe 24 years old, and this guy that I knew pretty well and played with him in, in bands, he was playing somewhere in like Toluca Lake, which is out there by Burbank or whatever. And he said, come out, man, and, and bring your sax, you know, and, and uh, we'll we'll do this. You know, I got a great gig. So I invite like six, seven people. We all go out. We're having drinks. We're watching that. And I'm sitting there with my sax. He never called me up. <laughs> and so I had, and I'm, th- and I mean, I just thought, I must not be that good, you know? And I uh, truly what it is is I honestly thought, I guess my time's passed. I was just supposed to be a college guy in this. I, w- I, I never was on a level of what would be called a pro, I think, but I was a pretty damn good player. And to this day, I could get up and play with a blues band and do some blues thing, but I was never really, really that good, you know, what I would say. And that was kind of like, and you know me personally, so you know, uh, there's no lack of ego here usually, but I was it was deflated immediately, and I just said, hmm. It's interesting that you didn't have almost, I call it like a pick-me-up. You have two choices when that, when that initial thing happens because it happens to all musicians. It's either you give up or you become better and put in the work to become mm. better. So my question becomes, and I've, I'm going to ask you this, and it's going to sound a little... A little jaded or... It's okay. uh, But I'm just curious why... What 
didn't you have at that point that that would make you want to put in the work to become a better musician instead of just calling it quits, essentially? Interesting question. It's not what... Uh, uh, ask it one more time so I get it right, okay? <laughs> so, so usually we have this instinct as yes. musicians to... You have two choices. You either quit or you... you you kind of take a step back and and say I'm going to do this, do it better and learn and and put in the work to become better. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, why at that what at that point didn't you have in your repertoire your a tool that you needed that you didn't have at that point that could have made you work harder to become that better musician? It's not what I didn't have. It's what I did have: alcoholism, alcohol. And partying was much more important than being structured and doing the work that it took to get good. And to this day, I probably believe that if I would have applied myself or if I would have quit drinking and if I would have straightened my act up, I could be better. But I wasn't so gifted to the point of where it would come alcohol and drugs or not. It was it was my at that point in my life, by the time I was 23, 24 you know, there was no, uh, I was on a, a locomotive heading for disaster. <laughs> and it's probably an internal thing. So it's probably impossible to ask this, but I'm curious cause there's two kinds of, of people. It's people that can't stop drinking or there's one that has like a threshold as I call it, where they can, I, they, I, they can do it in moderation mm-hmm. and you seem like, no offense. You seem like the guy uh, that that doesn't have that threshold. You I ha- certainly don't. You you. Uh, so my my point in, in all this is it's it's interesting that music and I'm sure music meant a lot to you, but it didn't mean so much so to where you, uh, that <clears throat> you could just give it up so easily. And maybe I'm putting this really harshly, but give it up so easily for drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Like that was more important than the music. So it's interesting to even hear that coming from you. Well, at that, at this moment, at that moment in your life, not okay. now, but I'm talking at that moment, it was, it's just interesting to hear that drugs and alcohol meant more to you than the music. And instead of applying that same energy to music, says the non-alcoholic. Okay. <laughs> when, one becomes alcoholic, it, 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 it's, it's not something that can be explained that way. And it has, has nothing to do with my instinct was strong enough to, I truly, and this is just me, I can only speak for me, I truly believe that I or other in alcohol are different neurologically or, or genetically or whatever. I'm not here to pronounce anyone else. But once I've lost the ability to control that there's there's no turning back and it doesn't no matter what <clears throat> excuse me what i did it didn't it didn't and it could, see because it polluted every part of my life regardless of of if it was music or cleaning my room or whatever it is everything was affected by it and nothing changed in my life till i got sober and i've been sober 34 years now and and I understand more than ever how my alcoholism has nothing to do with my inability to become a great player or or any of that stuff. It just is there. It's there and it's something that can't be, it's something that I can't, you know, I can't make my eyes brown 
and I can't, you know what I mean? <laughs> I can dye my hair. I could lose weight. I could, you know, I could work out or whatever, but I can't not be this. And, and, you know, for someone that does not have this obsession and compulsion, all it's very hard to understand because it's just like, you know, I don't like beets. I love food. But if somebody put a beet in front of me, I wouldn't eat it. <laughs> I wouldn't eat it. Okay? You know, I don't care. Maybe if I was, a, uh, that's the last food on earth, I would eat it. But I just don't because it just, it, it, it's not anything I want. But alcohol, you know, I couldn't, I could not not drink. And, and again, it, there's, it's not, I'm not trying to... No, no. Uh, be, let it all hang out. You know, none I, of this. Uh, you know. No, I, no. I'm not trying to 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 insinuate that that you're an alcoholic by any stretch of the imagination nowadays because you don't you don't drink. And no, I I'm just, alcoholic nowadays. Okay. I just don't drink. Okay. Well, <laughs> but my point. It's just really interesting that some musicians are are you know as and I guess as human beings, some people are like that. Yes. They don't have that that initial threshold to cut themselves off of. Of a certain substance or or something that's, you know, can that they think can fill in a void that can't be filled. So it's just interesting as as people that yeah. That well, it's, you know, and the thing is, I think that's is uh, uh, that whole subject of uh, drug abuse and alcoholism and all that stuff is best left for the individual because hmm. as you c- can think to yourself, well, God, if he was good enough maybe he could have stopped and then i could sit there and go how could you just leave that much in beer in your can and walk away you know i mean what's wrong there's something wrong with that guy you know see it's just because we look at life different or or i look at life differently than someone that that has no problem with putting this down or whatever you know that's the difference and 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 Mind this question too, where I'm curious if it's if it's because tea's good, by the way. Oh, it is. I love it. (laughs) It's good. I'm curious if if that becomes like a a control issue, a a confidence issue within yourself to say, "Hey, this is my threshold. I'm cutting it off. I have that control." And so it's interesting. Again, maybe that's where that situation or, or, or issue lies is just having control with with anything in your, in your life or um, not having control of it because uh, <clears throat> yeah i do believe that there's certain uh, traits of a uh, of a person that is uh that has addictive qualities mm-hmm. about them that yeah you know you put put a bunch <clears throat> of sugar in me uh, <laughs> i i want more sugar uh give me a pizza i can't have just one piece of pizza that's true you know but again the whole thing about this kind of stuff is that it's my opinion the person that has addictive behavior um i only can make an opinion about myself nobody else now you or somebody else that it does not have this compulsion i'm free to hear that kind of stuff and i have you realize that i'm an alcoholic a sober alcoholic and i opened a bar, a jazz club, <laughs> and, we'll get and to ran it, it we'll for. Get to it. I, don't, I don't want to spoil it too much, but that was gonna. It's it's kind of ironic here, yeah. but um, no. And I'm only asking questions. Yep. I know nothing about yep. this mm-hmm. because I hope I never have to get into that. I I yep. just know so many people that suffer with that. Yep. 
addictive quality, and I've always just curious of just there's nothing wrong with asking questions on why that happens or <laughs> no, no, it doesn't bother me. Enough. You know, so I'm, I'm, a, just, I'm an open book, buddy. <laughs> well, information is key here. Yep. The more we know, the more we can learn, the more conversations we can have without being afraid to even have them is mm-hmm. is key here to mm-hmm. bettering that part of society as I, I, believe as so. I call it. I believe so. Let's move ahead. So in the 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 immediately after this point of, of I want to talk about your college days. So what mm-hmm. give me a, a year real quick. Nineteen seventy two. Okay. So seventy two to like nineteen eighty. What were you doing musically speaking around this time? I was playing in bands till about seventy six. And then I <laughs> got the letdown. <laughs> and so after this, were there any musical projects that you that you touched? Did you ever record I, with any uh, of these? Uh, there are some recordings. Uh, there's some actual records and things like that. But uh, let's just say that the the mainstay, the the person that I uh, um, did most of that with, became a, a non entity in my life after through. Yeah, he's a. He was my closest friend for a long time, and he'll uh, remain unnamed. And uh, he basically uh, tried to. uh, (laughs) He called my wife up and uh, my ex-wife and uh, said, "Hey, so and so, and we're we're getting into swinging. You want to do that?" (laughs) Oh, I see. And she said to him, I don't want to screw you. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think Terrence wants to screw so-and-so. And And when I got home, she said, "Uh, you know what so-and-so did? And I said, you got to be kidding me, you know. And so he called me up and said, he was calling and we weren't picking up the phone. I finally picked it up. I said, what do you want? You know, he goes... He goes, uh, well, you know, she, I think she's taking it all wrong. I said, look, <laughs> she doesn't want to screw you, and I don't want to screw her. I said goodbye, and I hung up, and that was it. That was it, and and uh, that's been... A number of years. 25, 30 years, maybe. Oh, okay. That's yeah. that's the that's that, the 90s, though. No, no, wait, no, no, wait, wait. It was, it was 19... 19- 90 was when the last time but see he's well, was, the, he's okay, the guy so. that holds all the recordings and all of oh, that. Oh, I see. He was the guy that held all that stuff and you know uh, so So you were with him a long time then if you're talking from 70 1970 to, to 1990 yeah. that's a 20 year well, French you know that's, closest friend. Right. Best man in the in the in the <laughs> uh, yeah all that stuff. So I'm curious for you in the 80s what were some of the bands that you specifically were listening to, then say if had those same bands come out in the 80s that you wouldn't be, and, and some of your musical projects in the 80s. So now we're focusing on your 80s career. Well, my musical product uh, projects were pretty much nil. You know, I was uh, not involved in, you know, uh, in the early 80s till 88 when I got sober. Um, I was just a listener and an avid follower of music, I had, and I still have, a Moog synthesizer, a monophonic uh, mini Moog, and played around with that and screwed around with things. Uh, I uh, was someone that um, 
I, I mixed for bands. I was a sound engineer. I did a lot of that stuff here and there for other bands, uh, and local local groups. I would go down to the, you know, I had a, a some nice equipment, and I would go to the place, and I'd get a free dinner or drinks, and I'd help uh, different players that I knew. And um, But as far as the music I was listening to, you realize in 81... Um, is when MTV came out. So, uh, of course, I was following people like Peter Gabriel, who had left Genesis, uh, Sting, um, um, some of the uh, some of the other groups that were going on at that time. You know, it, it was a, a total music uh, revolution at that point. MTV changed everything as far as. Uh, exposure. MTV was the Google uh, of whatever back then because this was automatically an outlet that that uh, you could find out about these bands. You could see, you know, I was a, like, I know you're not a huge Bowie fan, but I was a huge Bowie fan and I saw him the very first time he was here at the Santa Monica Civic with the Spiders from Mars and then then all of a sudden he got to see, he was, you know, I, I saw him like 13 times after that and he was out uh, doing videos, uh, Michael Jack, all these different players that I would have never, ever really um, gone out and bought an album. But I watched the, wow, a little movie. I get to find out about the band and not having, because I, I think CDs came in, what year was that? 85? I think it's 85. 84, 85. It's really interesting to think about that MTV was out and five years later CDs. I mean, it's not really been that long, you know? And um, so, but the speaking of that, when, the, when CDs came out, all of a sudden, unreleased tracks of bands that I listened to before, alternate takes... Whoa, that was like just the most incredible thing that was, and I'm going, so all of a sudden I'm now, in addition to learning all the music that's going on, Herbie Hancock, who I used to listen to as a jazz player with all these other people, now they're in these different genres and I'm getting to hear these great legends that I listened to before, but tracks I never heard you know, things never released because they were doing everything they could to to get to sell these CDs and get and you could fit as much data as you could on there as opposed to a record and you could skip and all that stuff, drag and scrub and whoa, this was something else. Sure, and um, the quality of it oh, was yeah, just yeah, astronomically yeah, better yeah. than. Yeah. The, the only problem is is it, it was really expensive to buy a CD. I don't think people my age know. Because, because because now it's like the opposite. Like records are really records to me nowadays are the equivalent of how much CDs were back when they mm. first kind of came mm. out. Maybe not they weren't fifty dollars, but mm. they were what twelve ninety nine. That was yep. that was a lot yep. of money for nineteen eighty five, like the mid eighties and whatnot. So Absolutely. when a record was three ninety nine right. or six ninety nine right. for album or cassette. It's twice the price yep. of it. And you don't, it's hard to scratch a CD. I mean, you can scratch a CD, but, you know, the, the quality is there. And, it, you know, it's still there. And people, there's a resurgence of that right now, which is kind of, I just love anything having to do with music and, and it perpetuating, you know, and that's the, the wonderful thing about it. I, uh, you know, uh, 
I, I, you know, I got into all sorts of, uh, of different music and, and as my life changed, you know, what was important to me changed, you know, I was, like I said, in the, in the eighties, the early eighties till, uh, 88, I was bartending. I was playing it. Uh, I was bartending and, and doing clubs where there was dance music going on. Michael Jackson, all of this disco stuff still and all that stuff going on. So my music taste turned into more like I was kind of uh, referring to earlier as listening to music in the background, the groove. I wasn't, now I still go back and listen to Gentle Giant and Jethro Tull and Emerson Lake and Palmer and Yes and all of these groups. I listen intensely to this stuff. But then out in the public and all wherever, you know, uh, and, you know, I would t- put on KLSX, whichever, I think that's 97.1 it was at the time, the only r- what they called classic rock. And that it was KMET before. And, and, uh, and K-, K West and, uh, and, well, K K Rock and K-Rock. Uh, but see, K K and A C was like yeah, the metal right. station. But so I know K Rock yeah. though was the uh, uh, new waveish kind of punk type. It was a little, and I was into it at that time, you know. And uh, <laughs> I, I uh, just made me think about some of the some of the venues I went to. I went to uh, Madame Wong's in, in oh, uh, yeah. West or, or isn't there two different the, versions the, of This one was in Chinatown and I heard some great uh, great uh, punk bands there and uh, even the Golden Bear down here in, in Huntington Beach used wow. to have uh, like the Germs and some other really crazy uh, uh, bands there. Uh, and uh yeah, the Woodstock in Anaheim. There, yep. there was a venue. There was a there's a couple of them that I know. The I Doll Hut, you know, still there. Yep. Uh, now I I I want to touch upon one aspect that I that I definitely missed with you personally is, you know, your s- instrument of choice, which is the saxophone. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what that playing that instrument has taught you that you apply to life in general. That you know, it's like, do you have an, a more of appreciation for life thanks to um, playing a musical instrument? Oh, of course, of course. Well, I think you know you're talking when you're talking about a saxophone. It's it's monophonic, no chords. It's one note. So when it comes to that, unless you're doing something very bizarre like uh, some kind of uh, rhythm thing, you're talking about melody. M- melodies in itself. You can have some backup little tiny, but they're essentially melodies to that comp the the rhythm or uh, a chorus or a bridge or something like that. But a melody is something that um, I look at as almost meditative, you know, because it w- people remember songs, people remember they hum those kind of things in their head, and that's comforting. It's maybe it may be uh, subliminal. I, I don't know what it is, but I do know that uh, you know that. Uh, but I still go back to that very, 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 very first lesson that the uh, where he said, "Listen to the bass." And I, uh, any song I ever listened to, and you'd think I'd be a bass player, right? <laughs> uh, no, but uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. But that's a that's an interesting question. So it's almost like that. You you go back to your foundation. That's that. Yep. That's your foundation yep. is is listening for the bass and and mm-hmm. obviously it, it's and and br- I listen to bass. I listen to. Uh, I also listen to breathing. I, l- I listen 
to to tempo. I listen to uh, har- harmonics. I listen to uh, you know syncopation. Uh, the, all of those things they, they're they're probably natural to me now, and and the way I listen to music. I mean, because it's. Uh, my lady, she can, you know, we'll be driving somewhere and she's like listening to the music and loving it to death. And meanwhile, I'm going, listen to that, that chord, man. You know, <laughs> it's just like, you know, it's just, it's just a different w- approach to it. And, and, it I, and it affects me to my core. It affects me to my core. Let's Makes move- me cry at times. <laughs> Wah. Let's, let's move ahead real quick. I'm curious... Obviously, the 90s point is, is, I would almost, I wouldn't call it the prime of, of your life, but it's almost the start to kind of where you are now. So I'm curious, what made you decide to start Steamers, per se, or, or a club in general, when you were coming out of, of your alcoholism? Mm-hmm. It's just, again, you've mentioned it, it's ironic, but I'm curious what made you want to start a club, especially here in Orange County, mm-hmm. In what would I say the mid mid nineties? Early nineties. Okay, early nineties. Okay, all right. Um, uh, so another interesting story. So, yes, I'm getting sober. Uh, yes, I get married, and uh, and I haven't played in a band for quite a while. And I don't know where it was. I can't remember right now. But I ran into a couple old buddies from high school. And one's playing a guitar, one's playing bass. He said, let's get together. I have a little garage, like this, something. I got a garage with a kind of a studio in there. And I'd like to uh, uh, do something. Bring your sax, your flute, and all that. Wow, how cool. So I thought, you know, I'm sober now. I'm doing pretty good. I got a, a nice wife. Everything's... I'm, by the way, when I got sober, I'd hit bottom before. I was making a lot of money in restaurant management and all that. I started sweeping sawdust at a lumber mill in La Puente, California. And it wasn't, uh, uh, it wasn't anything thrilling. It was like backbreaking work that I, uh, and it was, uh, but you know what it was? It was one foot after the other, and I was just doing my part to get, it, to be straight ahead and just do what I got to do. And within two years of working there, I became the manager, the foreman of the plant. But, you know, uh, but I, so needless to say, what happened was I started, I was moving up in this thing because I had risen from the grave, I guess. And uh, um, I played with these guys a couple of times. And then all of a sudden we started going, hey, why don't we uh, open up some kind of club or whatever, you know, let's, let's build a place. And, and, uh, and uh, so we started scouting, you know, let's do this. Maybe we can, you know, well, uh, John, one guy, he was a construction guy and Rocky, the other guy was a, a cement guy. And, uh, you know, John says, well, I don't really have too much money, but I can build it. And the other guy says, well, we can do this or whatever, and um, really great guys. And um, Terrence, you have uh, all this musical ability, you know, to mix sound, to uh, run a, a 
a restaurant, to run a bar. You know, you've got all the management skills and this and that. And uh, this would be fun for you not having to work at the lumber mill and all that. And I said, okay, so basically what happened was we went on about a year and a half journey of finding places. And we went to downtown Fullerton before it's become what it is now. It was all, at that time, there was one place uh, called Heroes. And it was in a different area on Wilshire. And the rest was pawn shops and antique shops there. It was really run down. And we found a spot right on Commonwealth, right down the street from the police station, and the uh, it was next to an auto parts store, and it was 3,500 square feet, and the guy that owned it owned that building only, and um, he worked at the, apart, or the car parts store next door, and he, he gave us a great deal. And we went in there, and we spent every bit of money we had and every bit of money that my family <laughs> that would lend me. And, uh, you know, we, we did it. And within three months, John was gone. And within six months, Rocky was gone. And basically what it is is they were under the impression that, you know, we're going to open the doors and we're going to just collect quarterly checks. And... I knew different, and I was like competing with them. Say, dude, you got to help me. You got to be here. Oh, well, I have this job. I got to work. I can't do it. I can't. I'm going to wait. I quit my job and come here. And so, essentially, what ended up happening, I said, "Hey, Dad. Hey, Kevin, my brother." I said, "I need some help. Let me buy these guys out." So we bought them out, and within eight months of opening the place, and I started out with live music. I well, instead of building this huge kitchen, I built this the I, a bar with more of like a deli type uh, sandwiches and things like that, and put the put all of the money in the stage, in the sound, the lighting, and you know it was all and insulation. It was all about making it for the musician because I wanted them to have the best experience. I wanted them to treat them right, so that's what we did. So does that come from your experience with pl playing clubs as a musician? So you did, did that in, uh, in the back of your mind kind of play into? Of course. Okay. Of course, because the, the you know, uh, you jazz club, I mean, a, a club owner has a terrible reputation. <laughs> they don't fucking play me. They don't pay me. They don't do this shit. They, they, they're slave drivers. Uh, they, they give me shit food and they, they're always telling me to get back on stage. No, no. I said to myself, look. I'm going to do everything I can to. Pro First of all, I had uh, mad computer skills and advertisement and marketing, and I'm a gregarious. Wow, it's like a piano string. Uh, a gregarious type, open person that can uh, uh, greet people, be on a stage, and all that stuff. So, I did everything in my power to kind of make it rather than the person that listens to music in the background. The concert, the venue was set up to be a listening room where people would be there. And so each and every band that came up, I got on the stage and I didn't go, here's Tanner Poppett's group. I brought, here's Joe Schmo on the bass, here's Joe Schmo on the piano. I introduced them all up and at the end of the set, each and every set, I brought them all down one at a time and gave applause to everybody. So you almost made it intimate for, Very for the intimate. players. I, I love that. So. Yeah. Starting at first, how does the name Steamers come into play? Why settle? I, I think settling is the, the wrong word, but I'm going to use it anyways. Why s settle essentially on Steamers? Okay. And 
essentially, is it called Steamer's Jazz at first, or did it eventually morph into Steamer's Jazz because that was the primary music being played at that club? Okay, it started out as Steamer's Cafe. And one of the things we wanted to do was present live music, jazz, and other kinds of music, too, seven nights a week. We are right by Cal State Fullerton, right by Fullerton College, right by Optometry Club. There was like 60,000 students in the era. We wanted to make it so it was all ages, so anyone could come in. And so we wanted, and of course, at that time, in the very early 90s, Starbucks wasn't even, they were just starting off. So we were selling beer and wine and we had coffee drinks, you know, and the steamers, the actual logo, I don't know if you've, I've ever shown you it, it's a guy playing the sax sitting in a cup of coffee like a latte or something. You know, that's what it was. And steaming jazz, okay, like hot steaming jazz. A guy named, um, you know him, uh, Stan Getz had, a, had a, an album called Steamers, you know, and, 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 or steam, and I can't remember right now, it's been so long, <laughs> but, but that's what it was all about is hot steam and jazz essentially. And out of the coffee cup and all that. So that's where we came. I didn't come up with the, my Rocky's wife, I think came up with the, the name and, uh, and you know, the rest is history. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that jazz in the nineties could make you money seven nights a week. Okay, I, like, jazz has never made anybody money. No, but to keep, the, <laughs> but to keep a club open, okay. you well, have to incentivize people to come to the club. Yep. They have to be, one, into the music. But I'm assuming, too, that some of your focus lied on presenting the food properly yep. and, and having that quality of food to where people would just come in. Doesn't They don't have to like the music. They could just come in and have a bite to eat. And they did. And they did, and and it was set up that everything was set up to be casual. Everything was set up to be good and inexpensive. I didn't even charge for the bands to. There was no cover charge at first. People would come in to see a free concert. I would. I never ever paid the band based on draw, flat rate. This is what it is. It's three hundred. It's two hundred. It's seven hundred. It's a thousand. That's what it is. You pay it, and if you want another gig here, get people out. But I never said, "Oh, it's light on the door." One thing I never wanted was me to be looking at the door, going, "Oh shoot, I'm going to have to pay him a lot," or me looking at the door saying, "Ah, I can get away with it," or the guys on the stage going, "Oh, there's nobody here. Why should we care?" You know, it's in so. Is that depending on what night of the week these bands would play on? So if they played on a Tuesday, you would say the Tuesdays are 200. The no. Okay. It's all on who the band is. Okay. Yeah. It's all on who the band is. You know, and it started out with, and then, you know, God bless the people that played, the, you know, it's like the, the, the old adage, build it and they shall come. Nobody had a jazz club. There was a place called Randell's over here in Newport Beach or that area, Irvine area, I believe it was. Smooth jazz guy. Going back to this, yep. <laughs> and then the lighthouse and, and, in Redondo. And, and, yeah, the light. Yeah, but that's and then there was Catalina Bar and Grill in Los Angeles and the Jazz Bakery, a few of them. But n- no one was doing it seven nights a week like me, except and Catalina had the same like Sonny Rollins or whatever Tuesday through Saturday, and it was ridiculous price for to do it. But people in Hollywood go out and see it. We chose this because no one else was doing this at the time, and. Um, and it worked. It was not a money maker, but but uh, you build it and they come. I was fortunate enough to 
know quite a few people in the area and uh, in the business, and I got some good breaks, got some Grammy Award-winning people in there. Had people like Joe Pesci, the actor, up there. I've had Joey DeFrancesco, Diana Krall, some of the greatest, very uh, Buddy DeFranco, people that are, are legends would play there because of what I provided. They got a nice place to play. People listened. People would shut up when they played and they would listen. Nothing against people that get rowdy, but for jazz, it's a listening room. So I provided decent food. It was good food. It was not bad at all, but it wasn't like you're not getting steak and lobster. You know, you're getting a pasta or some, uh, you know, grilled panini or or whatever. And (laughs) it was, what's so funny about that? Panini, because there's a there's a um, a song that you played. Oh, that's right, <laughs> Panini. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was in the, <laughs> the vein of tequila. Panini. So <laughs> it's interesting. I I love this aspect about jazz, and maybe we can touch upon it as well. Where how they show their appreciation for jazz compared to the rock world, especially again, I'm going to go to extreme music. How they sh- how we show our appreciation is we headbang, we mosh. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we cheer at the end of the song. Jazz doesn't do that. Jazz, you you sit down. Essentially, somebody does a solo, and then somebody, and then we, they all clap because right. yeah. they know that solo is over, That's and right. now it's the next guy's turn. Yep. So it's interesting, just the crowd participation, mm-hmm. how they recognize and and show their their uh, their uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Rockers. Would, would, Their appreciation for the musicians. No, no, but I was saying you guys mash mosh right. Jazz people nod, man, or snap their fingers. That's what it is. And of course, you you you, you uh, clap after the solos and all that stuff. And and you can't do that in a metal. But I'm saying uh, you can. I know. You can yeah, do yeah that. I know. Well, you know the the crazy thing is that that every single um, thing uh, you uh, you started this thing about how can you make money in that and at the time smooth jazz was popular so one of the uh, one of the reasons I chose to do this is I said I'm going to stick to straight ahead jazz so I'm going to have straight ahead swing and stuff I'll have big bands every Monday I had big bands 17 piece big bands and I would do Latin bands and vocalists doing standards and stuff like that I did not have smooth jazz in there ever maybe once or twice I did prog nights there too. Once I once I branched out, you know, and and I started experimenting with different things, but I kept the jazz pretty much as a purist thing, you know. And uh, I treated the musicians good. I paid them every time. Never didn't pay a musician. Never. I fed them. I gave them drinks. I treated them right. I treated my customers good. Now, granted, after 20-some years, at the end, I was getting a little burnt out, and I was spending a lot of the time in the office, uh, you know, watching Netflix or YouTube. This is in 2015 or whatever. And that uh, it was it was time, you know. My father was very ill, I needed. I wasn't around when when my mom died. Uh, I was wasn't sober. It was a long time ago, and so uh, um, the you know and and it was a struggle to make it happen. It's a struggle to to survive, and and it's a rarity for any club to last twenty two years, let alone a jazz club seven nights a week. So ultimately, you know, 
I put the feelers out, and it was purchased. And uh, and they essentially just wanted it because it's in a, a prime part of town that in Fullerton, which by that time had morphed into this huge Bermuda Triangle of bars. And they was a it was in a prominent spot, and it's the place that Steamers was at, so they could easily do it. So they came in, paid for essentially the name, gutted it. Oh, gutted wow. it, and they're gone now. So I, I, I want to ask you real real quick on on this subject too. Is if you you mentioned the club was all ages, so I've always heard that there is a huge liability with music and all ages clubs nowadays. That's why you don't see very many of all ages clubs, mm-hmm. especially playing rock music or whatever, because of the liability. So as a club owner, can you give me some insight as to the liability with alcohol and an all ages club. Okay. Well, there's a, it's technical. There's what's called a 48 license and a 47 license. The 47 license is where you have liquor, but, and you can, as long as you're serving food, all ages can be a part of it. As long as nobody that's underage drinks, a 48 license is one of these bars like the, the peacock you see, and there's no windows on it. That's all that, you know, in some strip mall. That's a 47 license and, um, a 48 license. I mean, uh, so we had a 47 license and we served food till we closed. Now the bit about the liability is that, you know, when you have a club, it's not a controlled environment per se, like your the rock clubs. People are in my place. There were no standups. You had to be in a seat. So you had to be accounted for. So everyone, there was 150 seats. Everybody, you couldn't be standing on the wall, standing in the thing. You had to sit down to watch the show. Okay, not that they didn't get up at times and dance a little or whatever, but you want to you wanna come in. It's not like, oh, I'll just be in the corner. No, you got a reservation. You stayed in the seat. So we can account for them. In the whole time there, we never had an incident, never got in trouble with the ABC, which is the Alcoholic Beverage Control, never got a warning, Got never got anything like that, never even had a... a, a you know, a problem with a, a, a drunk person, maybe once or twice, but uh, I think I was a woman. <laughs> but, you know, we just, you know, it, was, it wasn't the environment for the people knew that when they went in there. Plus, I was omnipresent, and I was always there, and everybody knew it, and I was synonymous with the place. And I, I, to some people, I may be an imposing figure. <laughs> you know, they, they, that kind of shit just didn't fly in the place. People didn't get, they didn't get crazy. They were there. So there was no liability in that sense. Now, believe it or not, on closing night, some lady tripped on a chair or something and sued me. Yeah, <laughs> she like for her, you know, we were crowded that night and we're crowded all the time. But she she probably knew we were closing, thought I'm going to pull a, a stunt. And fortunately, my insurance paid the, the medical bills or whatever. She just like broke her ankle or, or twisted her ankle, some kind of shit like that. <laughs> but that was the only real liability. The main liability was, you know. Uh, my employees uh, stealing alcohol and shit from me, you know, doing drugs in the liquor room or whatever. Yeah, you know, that's that sure comes with the territory. I'm sure oh, you've yeah, seen, I've seen that it all. all. Yep. Uh, can we 
focus primarily on um, just some of the other venues that you remember going to around Orange County, per se. And I know you work at a place called Campus Jacks, which was was Hoagie Bar Michaels for right. me. That's my exactly. generation. So I was hoping we can get into some of this territory. And just I want to ask you, and I know you were friends with the gentleman who 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 used to, the essentially the couple that that own the lighthouse. And the lighthouse is kind of like a a, a synonymous uh, spearhead in Orange County mm-hmm. in general with with primarily jazz. There are a lot of records that have been recorded at this pl- at this particular venue so i'm curious in terms of its sound and i'm sure you've been there yes many 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 times so in terms of the sound why is it so what about that particular location and the sound and and there's just so many records recorded there i'm just curious well what about the sound is so it translates so well on a on a record or something well uh, i can tell you uh, the reason for the sound the way it is first of all it's it's kind of Wide open, high ceilings, uh, windows in the front, doors, everything. So what would normally be something with a lot of bounce and all that, it dissipates. It goes out. Plus, it's a long, narrow stretch like Steamers was, but the sound is on the flat, okay? So people are facing one side. So it comes straight out towards the bar, and I don't know if it's the way it dissipates or whatever, but it, it does sound pretty good in there. And, uh, yeah, the, the lighthouse is where Jack Sheldon and, you know, uh, some of the greatest, Dexter Gordon, Charlie Parker, all the, you know. Um, Miles Davis. Miles Davis. Uh, you know, uh, just uh, so many, so many. Great players at West Coast and East Coast played. My friend Howard Rumsey, he was the bass player for, and he was with the Stan Kenton band. And he's one of the last guys that I think was alive in the Stan Kenton band that stayed there. And he actually didn't own the place, but he basically was the impresario of jazz there. He's synonymous with it. And for many, many years. And then strangely enough, I had met him quite a few times, but then when I opened Steamers, he was the greatest supporter. He would come in with his wife, Nancy, all the time, and he would go, and another thing, I don't know if I told you this, there's a, a station called K-Jazz, and it's at Long Beach, used to be KLON, and I and there's a very, very famous guy named Chuck Niles, who was the, the radio, uh, the jazz radio guy for many many years i used to every two months or so go on and and, and uh be out, uh, do a live stuff with him on the promote radio. the promote what's going on at the at the club or no 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 something. not the, no i would just go on there for fundraisers or as a jazz guy talking chuck and i were good friends oh, okay that's yeah cool. yeah and uh well, they would have plus it's a fundraiser because it's publicly funded so i'd go on there and i would offer things and and talk and help dj with them and all i should pull those things out <laughs> i have some good interviews <laughs> i go way back but yeah you know so they are great supporters and i would get the word out and um you know i don't know if i also told you this i did a, a series um at Catalina Island for a whole summer, 11 concerts there over there at the country club, uh, take a boat on there Friday. J- just a lot of things involved with, with um, 
with jazz in Orange County and, and basically Southern California. I love it. Well, lastly, what are you kind of doing now at, and how did you essentially get the, the gig? I'm going to use uh, musician terms here, the gig at Campus Jacks, um, which essentially was bought Hoagie Bar Michaels, which again was a club that us musicians used to play all the time. They turned it, revamped it into, I don't know if it's a primarily a jazz club. I know they have a jazz night there. Yep. There's some rock bands, from my understanding, that play there mm-hmm. uh, once or twice a week. But how essentially did you get hooked up with them? Well, interestingly enough, um, Jack Jasper, who uh, owns Campus Jacks, he owned a place called Jack Shrimp on PCH in in Newport Beach, right across from the Hornblower, where they have those those big boats that do the tours around there. And he was there 28 years. And he decided to build this place, which is right across from the free, where Hoagie Bar Michaels, right? John Wayne Airport. Yeah, yeah. John Wayne Airport. He decided to take this, which was a bit of a rock shithole. And (laughs) I know know you have great memories of it, but as far as it wasn't very classy, it was kind of run down and all that. And he went in there and just completely vamped it. And even since the last time you saw it, you wouldn't believe what's going on there. But they started doing a jazz policy like once a week. And this is about four years ago. Uh, Yeah, once a month or twice a month. And my friend Tony Guerrero, who he was kind of doing it monthly with them. And he was, Tony was with me for almost the whole time and as a matter of fact he he was there on closing night at steamers and uh, we have a, a long long history um i did a fundraiser there for for some uh, 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 uh let me let me go back a little bit i told you my i sold the place my dad was ill i stayed with him for a couple of years till he died and and uh i kind of just i'm done with jazz and i'm you know i'm gonna be old and just listen to my music and not get involved. I don't have to worry about any of this crap anymore. And I went to see someone, Gina Saputo, play at a place called the Anaheim Anaheim Packing House or whatever. And downstairs, she was there, a great singer. She sings with the Jeff Goldblum uh, band, and uh, she's fantastic. And I went and seen her. I hadn't seen her in years. And this is after my dad had died, and I thought, well, I might as well go listen to a band. And I hadn't seen a, ba- a live, and you realize I presented 9,300 concerts at Steamers, 9,300 over the years. We used to do them two on Saturdays, all sorts of stuff. So and all this time, I hadn't gone two years without seeing a band play. So I went to this place, and I saw her there, and somehow someone that was there recognized me. The word got out, and... Like 30 people from Steamers showed up, old employees and people, and we just kind of had a good old time. And then they're saying, well, why don't you talk to this guy about doing a a series here or whatever? I go, you know, if the right place came along and said, we'll just let you do Steamers Jazz here, I'd do it. But I don't want to worry about it. I don't want to worry about the tickets. I don't want to worry about the band and playing that. I, I don't mind being the MC. I don't mind being the figure. And nothing just happened. Uh, but the guy came up to me, the owner of the place, talked to me a little bit about it. But I could tell he he asked me my opinion. I gave him a few opinions about how I thought was you know the sound and everything like that. And and I I, I could just tell he wasn't the. Some people 
like to accept help. Some people get threatened by it. And I w- certainly wasn't imposing on him. He just asked me, so I told him my truthful opinion. So that never worked out. And then I uh, got called by someone else that was there that night if I could do an MC for a, uh, for a fundraiser for this people trying to get, uh, uh, you know, a lot of musicians don't have insurance policies and this uh, this group that i can't remember the name of it like right music now. cares or something yeah like yeah that. And, and it's it's where they they help get it and so uh, they advertised me and the place got filled so while i'm there uh, jack it was really funny jack um comes up to i said hey jack you know when i'm going up there do you want me to promote whatever else you got coming up tony's band or whatever whatever i'll be happy to go and he goes nah you don't have to do that and then what happened so when i brought the band down i said well tony's gonna be here next month or whatever or so and so all these people came up to me you know that were like ah to steamer blah 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 you know there were probably 30 40 people there from steamers and jack looks at me like oh this guy's no, he didn't know me. <laughs> he didn't really know me. So what ended up happening, him and his partner, Tim, who you met, Tim, the guy does the, the he's the visionary behind the, the entertainment part of it, uh, said, we want you aboard. We want you aboard. Well, you can do steamers, jazz at Campus Jacks. We'll, you know, you just steer the way. We'll, we'll back you up. So that basically what happened, I started out with once a month and it went to, uh, twice a month, then it went to every week, and then it went to twice a week. Right now, it's two, sometimes three. But I only participate because I I want to I keep myself at a, a certain distance because it's not like a money maker. Th- it's not like uh, I don't want that headache that I had before. But I can go there. I can be the guy that introduces the band. I can be the guy that helps book the band. I can be. I bring. Uh, my reputation and my name to the club and they they return man they've got it a new piano they've got beautiful screen it's just really spectacular what they're doing there well, it's it, streaming and all that it's important though that you're doing i mean you may not even realize this but it's pretty important to the style of music out here especially because mm-hmm. you're bringing in bands from uh, you're bringing in jazz essentially yep. to an era that's you know right right uh, um, you know, you guys are, are no spring chickens anymore. You right. need to. So, how do you find the balance with bringing in new cut, uh, people there, especially people of my age right. and, and and younger, to get into jazz? You know, or do you do you have like a startup night to where it's like if you're not into jazz, this is a good band for you to to see to to appreciate the style of music. Well, or? typically, typically you don't go that far, but we do offer. Uh, student discount or student actually students free on Thursdays they make a reservation they I think there may be a two drink minimum or something <clears throat> but as far as um, I never push a, a, a group down anyone's throat because their taste may be different than mine but I have been cultivating new people since the early 90s that's what it's always been about, because especially at that time back then, there was no one listening to jazz in 92. They were listening to some other stuff. They were not, and the jazz they were listening, they thought was Kenny G or whatever. That's what they were listening to. So I'm 
cultivating, I'm educating, not me personally, but me by uh, presenting this style of music. And, and you're right, this is important for this to be perpetuating. And there'll be a day that I'm gone, and there'll be another person that does it. But if I can be a part of it, at, uh, in a, not saying a minimalist way, but in a way that is, does not disrupt my life, why not? And that's what I'm doing now. I it doesn't it. doesn't disrupt my life. You got to witness that. You came there, enjoyed a night there. Which, by the way, you're more than welcome to come again. I'm. All, you, it's long overdue. I will. But you understand. I mean, you can see what's going on. It, it's it's a just a it's a beautiful thing, and I'm happy to be a part of it. Well, I'm happy that you're here, Terrence. Thank you very much again for giving me a few minutes of your time to to do this with me. Lastly, where can people find anything that you're that you're a part of, and especially Campus Jacks? I would like to help promote in some sort of way on this particular episode. Campusjacks.com, or they could go to uh, steamersjacks.com, or they could go to uh, Facebook, uh, Campus Jacks at, uh, on Facebook, on Instagram, or Jacks Hideaway. That's J-A-X-C-A-M-P-U-S-J-A-X.com. And all these shows are there. And if they want to go and uh, if they're a student or whatever, bring a student ID. It's free, free cover. Just make a reservation. There's a lot of great things coming up. Also, just want to remind you, coming up on July 7th through 11th, we're doing uh, our second Meta Jazz uh, um, uh, festival that we did one last July. We're doing another one, and this is at the Barclay Theater in Irvine. We're and your yours truly will be the host, and we're talking some very very brilliant. Eddie Daniels um, is going to be there, on, and uh, Roger Kellaway. Some of the greatest guys alive are going to be there playing there. And and the, I don't know if you ever been to that Barclay Theater in Irvine. It's just gorgeous it's like a performing arts center and we're going to be doing after party things also so and i think that's it you know maybe i'll see you at nam show or are you going or you know i don't know I've no, no idea as a as of as of this moment but you never know <laughs> I, I never never say never anymore but right. terrence really thank appreciate the word of your uh, of your time love here. you tanner man love i appreciate too, it man. man it's great i love it so another episode of papa's corner hopefully we'll get this man back on the show and we'll do some more jazz talk because I absolutely. Love that I think we got. I think we have more to talk about yeah, here too. A lot. <laughs> we only scratch the surface here, but Terrence, I want to thank you again. And for another episode of Poppet's Corner, guys, we're out of here. Cheers. <laughs>